good. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll dig into God's Word. Lord, this has been so encouraging, hearing what you're doing in us as a body and through us as a body. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. And Lord, I I pray now for this time as we open up your Word. I I know how Satan is described as a a bird who plucks the Word out of our hearts, and so we're, we're left without it. And I pray that that would not happen today. I pray that you would be here and that the word that is sown would take deep root in each of our hearts, my heart and each of our hearts. And you know, Lord, how much I need your help to um, to be clear and to have the right heart and to have wisdom in the word. And so I pray that you'd give that to me. And I ask that you would come with great power and meet us through the scriptures now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Well, the Bible teaches us uh, in many different passages that Satan is is a deceiver. Deceiver. Doesn't just come right up and just say, Jesus isn't God and stop trusting him, but he's he's a deceiver, which means he he loves to mislead us so we, we don't know that we're being misled. We don't know that we have wrong thinking. We don't know that we're being deceived. That's what he loves to do, is to deceive us. And he especially works hard to deceive us so we will not see the seriousness of our sin. It goes over time, working hard on, on making sure we don't see, feel the, the seriousness when we see sin rising up in our lives. So for example... Maybe there's somebody at your workplace and you're just really bitter towards them and you're nursing a grudge and you're just you're not forgiving them. You're not loving your enemy. You're just fuming at this person. And what Satan will do is he will sidle up alongside of you and he'll whisper, it's okay that you haven't forgiven them. I mean, God knows how hard it is to forgive. Don't worry about it. And if you buy that, you've been deceived. Or... Maybe you're just like, you don't pray. have no interest in reading the scriptures. You're, you're busy, right? Got lots going on, more important things. And Satan can whisper to you and say, you know, listen, God knows how busy you guys are down in Silicon Valley, right? He knows. Don't worry about it. Don't beat yourself up over this. It's all right. Okay. And then we're deceived. And Satan loves to deceive us so we don't see the seriousness of sin when we, when we see it rising up in our hearts, when we feel unbelief rising up in our hearts. Satan wants us not to take it seriously. And so the result is that many believers are deceived about the seriousness of the sin that's in their hearts. And it may be that, that, that some of us here this morning are deceived about the seriousness of sin that's in our hearts because Satan is a deceiver. But, Here's the good news. God loves us. He cares for us. And he has given us a tool. A tool which, if we will use it, will always be able to expose every deception Satan brings you without fail. Every time he deceives you, if you'll use this tool, exposed. That's deception. Not buying it. That's deception. No way. That's false. There's a tool he's given to us that every single time we use it will expose Satan's deception. And what that tool is, is the Word of God. 
the scriptures. Just like when Satan was speaking lies to Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus brought out the tool. And he quoted the scriptures right back at him and did not fall for any of his deception. And in today's passage in Hebrews, God wants to expose Satan's deceptions about sin. He's trying to make us think sin isn't serious. In this passage in Hebrews, the author is going to help us see just how serious sin is. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're, we're going through Hebrews, and our next passage is Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Now, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We, we would like each of you to have a Bible that you can look at as we're preaching this morning. The most important words you're going to hear this morning are the words from the Bible, okay? My job is to introduce you to the Bible. Have you seen what the Bible says? Jesus isn't going to ask you at the end whether you believed what Steve Fuller said, but he's going to ask if you believed what the Bible said. So this is the, the important part right here. Have the word in front of you. We want to walk through this. Hebrews 3 is on page 1002 and the Bibles are passing out. Now we're in a section right now that runs from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 10. And in this section, the author of Hebrews is teaching his readers from Psalm 95. So he's teaching his readers from Psalm 95 about how we need to avoid the mistakes that Israel made as she was heading out of Egypt, heading towards the Promised Land. So in verses 7 through 11, he urges us, don't let your hearts grow hard, like Israel let her heart grow hard. And in verses 12 through 14, we looked at last week, he urges us, take care so that none of your brothers and sisters' hearts grow hard with the deceitfulness of sin. And then that brings us to verses 15 through 19. And what he does in this section is he raises the question, how should we view sin in our lives? How should we see it? When you feel unbelief rising up in your heart, when you feel rebellious towards God rising up, when you feel sin, when you see yourself moving towards sin... How should you view it? And to answer that question, he's going to teach us from Psalm 95. So start right there in verse 15. How should we view sin in our lives? And look at what he says starting in verse 15. As it is said, now he quotes from Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now the rebellion He's describing the time when Israel had just left Egypt and was on her way to the promised land. And during that time, she fell into what's called in this passage, the rebellion. Became totally rebellious. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And that's shocking if you stop and think about it. Who were those who left God's word, left Egypt, heard God's word, and then rebelled? It was all of those, underline that word all, all of those who left Egypt led by Moses. Now the author is obviously not including Moses in that all, and guys like Joshua, Caleb, and probably a few others, but virtually all of Israel Virtually all those who had left Egypt, they heard God's word, but they rebelled against God so much that they weren't allowed to enter the promised land. So just try to try to feel the scenario. I mean, think about the nation of Israel at that point. They'd been slaves in Egypt. They'd called out to God, deliver us. 
God sent Moses and mighty signs and wonders, and they had seen with their own eyes the Nile River turning to blood. They'd seen God work. Whoa! They'd seen with their own eyes gnats filling the land, frogs filling the land. They'd seen with their own eyes darkness covering Egypt except in Goshen where they lived. They heard with their own ears the cries of the Egyptians who had their firstborn sons slain. They saw that, what happened. They saw the Red Sea parting with their own eyes. They walked across the Red Sea on dry land themselves on their way to the promised land. So they saw all these things that God had done to deliver them. And yet they ended up rebelling against God and they were not permitted to go into the promised land. Do you feel the tragedy? Deliverance from Egypt, not able to enter the promised land, dying in the wilderness. How did that happen? How did they move from seeing all of that to being rebellious so much so that they were not allowed into the promised land? In verses 17, 18, and 19, the author of Hebrews tells us three words happened. Sin, disobedience, and unbelief. Verse 17, And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. So how did they move from seeing God's miracles to being so rebellious they weren't allowed to enter the promised land? It's because they allowed sin and disobedience and unbelief to rise and to take over their their hearts. So here's what the author of Hebrews wants us to walk away with. Sobering word. He wants us to understand that just as sin and disobedience and unbelief kept Israel from entering the promised land, so sin and disobedience and unbelief could keep us from entering heaven. It doesn't get more serious than that. Let that destroy Satan's deceptions about the seriousness of sin. Strong word here. So, when you feel unbelief rising up in your heart, which I have felt this past week, and I am assuming all of us have, right? We're not in heaven yet. There's still indwelling sin. You'll feel it kicking in, okay? When you feel unbelief, rebelliousness, sin just rising up in your heart, what you need to understand is that that unbelief and that rebellion can grow such that it will take over your heart consume your heart so that you won't enter heaven. That can happen. Now, listen very carefully. If you've been genuinely saved, that will never happen. If you've been genuinely saved, that will never happen. No one who's genuinely saved can ever end up losing their salvation. Why? It's because you've been genuinely saved, then God is working in your heart so you take this warning seriously. That's why. The warning is true. If, big if, if you let unbelief grow unchecked without repentance, without Jesus, help me. If you let it grow, 
that will show that you were never saved in the first place. Which is why if you're saved, when you feel and belief rising in your heart, you will deal with it. And we're going to talk about how to do that, that in a moment. So this warning is crucial to understand. Unbelief in your heart, sin, disobedience, it's, it's like a cancer growing in you. It's like if, if the doctor said, you know, you have a malignant tumor in you. Let's call it unbelief, call it sin, but it's 100% treatable. It's 100% treatable. But if you ignore it, it will kill you. That's what he's telling us. We never fear that it can't be treated. Oh, it's 100% treatable. We can treat it. This is not a problem. We can treat it. But if you ignore it, if you ignore it, it will kill you. And so that's how we should think about sin when we feel it rising in our hearts. So you're, you're feeling bitterness towards someone at your workplace. You're angry. You're, you're nursing a grudge against them. And, and, and what you should say is, this is treatable. This is treatable. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. This is treatable. But if I ignore it, it could kill me. Forever. You don't pray. You're not interested in reading the scriptures. Too busy for that. This is treatable. This is treatable. But if I ignore it, it'll kill me. Forever. That's how we should talk about sin. So that's how the author of Hebrews wants us to view sin. What moved Israel from an amazing deliverance from Egypt into a place where she was so completely captured by rebellion, her heart was, was so rebellious that she wasn't able to enter the promised land, it's that sin, disobedience, and unbelief gained the ascendancy in her heart. Now again, let me just say, if you're genuinely saved, that will never happen to you. This is really a crucial truth because he will keep you fighting sin until the end. He will keep you trembling before the warning. He will keep you calling Satan on his deceptions. He will keep you saying, it's treatable, but if I ignore it, it'll kill me. It's treatable, but if I, if I ignore it, it'll kill me. He will keep working that in your heart all the way to the end. He is the keeper. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who began the good work in you and will continue it, but that's how he continues it. Is when you feel temptation rising in your heart, you don't say, oh, I'm saved, it's all right. Deception is what that is. The way you know you're saved is that when sin rises in your heart, you say, oh, glory to God, this is treatable. I've got to kill it, though, by the power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's treatable, but if I ignore it, it will kill me. John Owen said, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Only options we have. So you see how this works? The way we know that you are saved, the way you know you're saved, more importantly, is because when you feel sin arising in your heart, God works, continues the good work he started in you, and he makes you realize the seriousness of it. You're not deceived by it. You say, this is treatable, but if I ignore it, it could destroy me forever. That's what he wants us to understand. So then, in light of that, how should we deal with sin, disobedience, and unbelief? Because we'll have a chance to work on this this afternoon, right? Okay, I know I will. Maybe the next few minutes. It's just the reality of the Christian life. So how should we deal with it? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore. I always like to say, my dad says the word therefore is the most important word in the Bible in many passages. Therefore, because of verses 15 through 19, 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Strange command. When we see sin and disobedience and unbelief rising in our hearts, we should fear. We should feel fear. Okay? Even though it's treatable, we should fear. Because if you ignore it, it will kill you. It's just like if you went to the doctor and he said, well, we ran the test and and, uh, you have a malignant tumor. It's completely treatable. Okay? We can deal with it in the next 30 minutes. But if you don't, it will kill you. Now, you'd have some level of, ha, ah, right? This is serious. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm not going to stick around. I'm going to go do something. No, no, you'd stay. You would stay there for 30 minutes, even 40 if it took that long. You would stay, right? But you would feel a level of fear. There's something in me that has the potential of destroying me. And you would take it with the utmost seriousness. And that's what he's calling us to do here. Now, at this point, the author of Hebrews anticipates an objection from his readers. And maybe some of you are feeling the same objection. It's like, well, wait a minute. I've heard the good news. I know the good news. I've listened to the good news. So aren't I okay? Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. For good news came to us, just as it did to them, Israel, as she was coming out of Egypt. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So they heard the message, but they they had no faith. They were full of unbelief. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, the rest of heaven, God's rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they, namely those who continued in unbelief, shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So notice, all of Israel heard the good news, but virtually all of them did not enter heaven, did not enter God's rest, the promised land, which is a picture of heaven. And the reason is, even though they'd heard the good news, they had not believed, they had not trusted God as revealed as Savior, Lord, and heart-satisfying treasure. They hadn't trusted him. They weren't trusting him. They allowed sin, disobedience, and unbelief to, to stay in their hearts. Just to, to sit there. And so they did not enter God's rest. And so when we see sin, disobedience, unbelief rising in our hearts, we should fear. Again, because it's completely treatable, but if left untreated, then that would, it could, it could gain the ascendancy in our hearts and keep us from entering heaven. And let me just take an example. I'm going to walk through how I think we deal with this. Let, let's go back to the example of, uh, let's say you're really bitter about somebody at your workplace. They've hurt you. They've cost you maybe a promotion or maybe some recognition or they sabotaged your work in some way. Okay, or maybe, anyway, whatever. You, you know the reasons why. Okay, so you're, you're really feeling this bitterness at someone at work. Now, Jesus stands before us and he promises that he will be such a heart-satisfying treasure to us, that he will more than make up for whatever anyone has cost you. He doesn't deny what anybody's cost you. He would weep with you over what that person's cost you. But what he promises you is, I am such a treasure. I will so satisfy your heart 
that I will more, infinitely more than make up for that loss that that person has cost you. And he says, so experience me as your heart's satisfying treasure and love your enemy and forgive your enemy. Let me so fill your heart. I'll do it right now. Let me so fill your heart that you can love them and can forgive them. That's what he stands before us and says. So, he's standing before you saying that. And, and, if, and if, while he's standing before me saying that, if, if I'm nurturing a grudge, if I'm rehearsing imaginary conversations with this person, I'm going to say this and this, and then they'll say that, but then they'll say that, you know, you got this whole imaginary conversation thing going on. If I'm rehearsing what they've done and feeling the, the, the pain and being bitter and feeling angry, I, at that point, I am not trusting Jesus Christ. See that? At that moment, I'm not trusting him. He says, I will so satisfy your heart, Steve. Yes, they've done wrong to you. I will so satisfy your heart that that it will vastly more than make up for what they've done, and you'll be able to forgive them. So come to me and forgive them. And I'm just sitting there saying, no. I'm saying I don't trust you. So there's unbelief in my heart towards Jesus Christ at that moment. So what should I do then at that moment? Unbelief's rising up in my heart. He's standing before me, but I'm not trusting him. What I should not do is let Satan deceive me and say, it's fine. Everybody sins. Right? Look what they did to you after all. Surely bitterness is appropriate in this case. And besides, God knows how hard it is to forgive people. That's deception. You must not say that. What, what you should say, what I should say, if that's the situation I was in, is I should fear. Chapter 4, verse 1. This bitterness in my heart, this unbelief, if unchecked, if I don't deal with it, it could cost me eternity. And glory to God, because he has saved me genuinely, I will pay heed to that warning and say, what can I do? You say it's treatable. I'm not feeling that this is going to go away anytime soon. If you, if you could take it away, okay, help me. All right? So now, now, in this passage, so far we've got one step we take, and that is we feel fear. All right? But praise God, the author of Hebrews doesn't just leave us there and say, you know, grace to you and peace, amen, end of letter. Okay, it doesn't stop there. There's a crucial next step, and it's found verses, a couple of verses later. Look at verse 16. This is how it can be treated. Now, we're going to unpack verse 16 more next week's. But let's look at it right now. It's crucial because I don't want to just leave you in fear. Okay, we got the fear step down. Ah, 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 come back next week. No, no, no. Let's deal with it today. So what do you do? Verse 16. This is so precious. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now starting all the way back at the last verse of chapter 2 through chapter 3, the author of Hebrews has helped us see that Jesus is always going to be there to help us whenever we are tempted. And that's brought to a culmination right here in verse 16. So here I am, I'm feeling this bitterness rising up in my heart. And you know, when you feel bitterness, it doesn't feel like anything's going to change. The thought of forgiving this person feels impossible, right? It feels impossible. So what do you do? 
You obey 16. You, with confidence, you draw near to the throne of grace. That's what you do. And the promise is that every time you do that, every single time you do that, you will receive mercy. And you will find grace to help you in your time of need of overcoming, treating that temptation. He will treat the cancer of bitterness, that tumor of bitterness that's in your heart. He will treat it. He will cut it out. He will zap it. It'll be gone. He will do it every single time. So how? How does that work? Let me just walk you through how to fight the fight of faith, how to do verse 16. Here's what I would suggest you do. Again, you want to come with confidence to the throne of grace. So how do you do that? I would suggest you find time to be all by yourself between you and the Lord, just you and Jesus Christ. Okay, maybe you go into your bedroom, close the door, kneel down by your bed. Maybe you go into your office, sit down at your desk, close the door, maybe you, whatever. But find, you know, you turn off the phone, turn off the computer, turn off the TV. Okay, this is serious. You want to come, there's a throne of grace. I'm going to come to the throne of grace because I need to be treated now. And so you, you come to Jesus as you are. Oh, this is so important. Don't make the mistake of thinking you've got to get over your bitterness before you can come to the throne of grace. The only way to get over your bitterness is by coming to the throne of grace. You come as a bitter person, which is why it's called a throne of grace. Okay? That's why you can come with bitterness in your heart. Don't pretend. Don't try to get over it on your own. Don't try to you know, say whatever slogans like, you know, if, I, if I'm bitter, I won't get better, or whatever the phrases are, or, you know... No, come to the throne of grace. So you come to Jesus as you are. You say, Jesus, I'm, I'm bitter. Look at this. Look at this tumor of bitterness and unbelief that's in me. And you confess to him, I am sorry. How can I not trust you? But I'm not trusting you now. Help me. And you confess it to him as sin. Forgive me for the sin of this. And then he will assure you of forgiveness You will feel his love being poured out upon you, his acceptance, his arms. You're there at the throne of grace, and the God of the universe is there, loving you, there to help you. And then, you don't stop there, you ask him, you say, now please, by your power, change my heart. Through the power of your Holy Spirit now, help me to to see that you are my all-satisfying treasure. Help me to feel the wonder I have in you, which you say will be so great that it'll more than make up for what this person cost me, but I'm feeling nothing of you right now except I'm in trouble and I need you. And he loves honest prayers like that. You've experienced it. This is, this is how you fight the fight of faith. And so you, you come as you are, you confess your sin, you ask for his help, ask for the work of the Holy Spirit, and then the, the sword of the Spirit is what? It's the Word of God. That's the sword that the Spirit will use to slice that tumor out of you. Okay, It's the Word of God. And so you find a passage of Scripture that will show you who Jesus is and help you to forgive. And I use Matthew 18, 18 to 35. That's my go-to passage. And so you, you pray over this passage until you see Jesus as your treasure once again. And until you once again feel the Holy Spirit making the glory and the beauty of Jesus so real in your feeling heart that it does more than make up for the cost that this person brought to me. And I, I am filled, even with what they cost me. I'm not mostly feeling lost anymore. I am mostly feeling the fullness 
And I'm humble before the cross so I can love this person who's hurt me and I can forgive my, my enemy. And see, that's how it will work. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and we will receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So we fear, it's treatable, but if I let it stay, it could kill me forever, and we draw near to the throne of grace, and the tumor's cut out, and we're rejoicing, right? Walking and leaping and praising God. That's what we're doing. That's how we deal with sin, disobedience, and unbelief. Fearing it, and then running to the throne of grace. Okay, now, I don't want to make this sound easier than it is. Okay? Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes within 10 or 15 seconds, your heart has just changed. Okay? I've experienced that once or twice, maybe, in my life. Okay? Most of the time, for me, it's, it's not that easy. And, I mean, just imagine, if, if you're full of bitterness, I mean, that's what you're feeling, that's, that's what you are really feeling, you're bitter. This person, they did this, they did this, it's just wrong. At that moment, the thought of turning your heart towards Jesus, knowing that he's going to get rid of that, it's hard. It's just, it's hard. It's hard. Okay? And it may take some prayer. And it may take some thinking over the scriptures. That's why it's called a fight of faith. It's a fight, right? You've experienced this. And so, in verses 3 through 10, I love how the author next tells us what we will gain if we take on this fight. What will we gain? if we respond to sin in this way? And his answer is, we will enter God's rest. Now, here, here's, this is a complicated passage. And, and here's what's going on. The author's just taught us from Psalm 95, given this whole understanding of, of sin, this whole theology of sin. And the whole issue there is whether Israel could enter God's rest or not. And so the question is, is God's rest just the promised land? which would mean that there's no God's rest for us in the future because promised land, that's old, that's Israel, it's thousands of years ago. Or in the Old Testament, when God's rest is talked about, is it something different from the promised land, which means it's still awaiting us now? That's the answer. Okay, God's rest did not finish thousands of years ago. God's rest is still awaiting us now, but he wants to teach us that through this passage. So start with verse 3. He says, We who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, Quoting from Psalm 95 again, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works, God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Okay, so it's clear from verse 4 that God's rest started on the seventh day of creation. Okay, first six days, God was creating. On the seventh day, God rested. So God's rest started the seventh day of creation, which means it's different than the promised land in Israel, which hadn't happened for many, many, many years. Keep reading in verse 5. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my, my rest. Okay, now I've got to make a distinction here. In Psalm 95, it describes what God said to Israel as she was on her way to the promised land. Will she enter my rest or not? Okay. But David uses this verse from Psalm 95 to talk to his readers. David in Psalm 95 
He's talking to Israel who's already in the promised land. And he says, if you continue in unbelief, you will not enter God's rest. So here's the point. David's listeners in Psalm 95 are already in the promised land. So if David says, you may not enter God's rest, that means it can't be the promised land because it's still something that they could or could not enter. Do you see that? Are you with me? I sure hope so because I'm not going to go back over that. All right. You can see that in verses 6 through 8. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Joshua brought Israel, those who, remember the next generation, into the promised land. Okay, If that was bringing Israel into God's rest, then God wouldn't have spoken of another rest later on. So the punchline then is verses 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's not just the promised land in the past. There remains in the future a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the point of these verses is that God's rest awaits us in the future and that's why it's worth the battle. Let me just pause here and uh, I'd like to ask for some questions and let's see what questions are and I'm going to really pray for God to give wisdom. Okay, so... What questions? I mean, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about assurance of salvation, and you, you can't lose your salvation, but these warnings are serious that if I continue in sin, unchecked, without repentance, that'll show I never was saved, so I won't be in heaven. Okay, trying to put all this together, and we can talk about that some more if you want to, or we can move on to some other questions if you'd like to. But any questions about this before I draw some conclusions? Feel free if you got one. Okay, are we together? I want to make sure that we're clear. All right. Here's what this means, church. God's rest awaits us in the future. Okay, just think about your future. You think about work tomorrow, and then this, and then that, and that. But the big reality of your future is God's rest. That's what awaits us in the future. Now, that is not a phrase that probably most of us use to describe heaven very often. But I'd like to encourage you to start bringing, to make that part of your vocabulary. You're going to God's rest. You're going to God's rest. And both of those words are, are crucial. First of all, it's God's rest. Which means that you will be brought face to face with your Creator. Your Father. Your Redeemer. Your Savior. You will be brought face to face with God in whose presence there is fullness of joy. That awaits you. 100 years from today, that's your destiny. In whose presence is fullness of joy. Because, see, beholding God and seeing God and worshiping God is the infinitely greatest joy of the universe. And it will be yours. It's God's rest you're entering into.
But it's also God's rest. It's rest. You will rest from your works as God rested from His on the seventh day. So see, now we work. Now we fight the fight of faith. Now we pray. Now we study. Now we read. Now we counsel, encourage, exhort. Now we fight. Now we, as we'll see in the verse next week, strive to enter into God's rest. By faith alone, coming to the mercy seat alone. That's how we do it. But we, it's a battle. It's war. It's war. But it's worth it. A million times over, it's worth it. Because at that point, the fight will be over. No more striving. No more work. You will never again, never again, need to fight unbelief in your heart. Bring it. Do you love that? You will never again have to battle sin. You will never again feel rebellion rising up in your heart. Because at the point when Jesus Christ comes back, at that point you're glorified and all indwelling sin is removed. You're sinless at that point forever. So it'll be over. The battle will be over. You'll never again need to fight sin, disobedience, and rebellion. You will rest with all the redeemed before God face-to-face with God forever. So fight. Fight now. Help each other fight. Encourage each other to keep fighting. Fight. Because God's rest awaits. Okay? Let's stand. I want to pray this over us. Please, Father, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, through your word now, would free every one of us from whatever level of deception we may have been under regarding sin. Please, Lord, help us to hear your voice in this word and understand that it's deadly serious when sin rises in our hearts and that it's completely treatable through the cross, by faith alone, in your grace alone, it's completely treatable. I pray, Lord, that that anyone here who has been feeling weary of the battle, please, Lord, right now, by the work of your Spirit, give them a taste of your rest. Encourage their hearts right now, I pray. They've, They've been weary in the battle. They've wondered if it's worth it. Lord, I pray that you would give them a taste right now so that they would leave here renewed and saying, yes, you are worth it all. Please do that. Lord, Lord, for anybody here who is just flat out deceived, maybe at this point isn't even buying it, God, please bring your power upon them right now and set them free. Use the sword of the Spirit through your word to cut the deception away and let them run to the throne of grace and feel you changing their hearts and assuring them of forgiveness and filling them with your presence. 
Come and do that, God. I, I pray for a fresh level of earnestness in our fellowship with each other. That we would love each other. Love each other enough to encourage each other day after day, as long as it is still called today like we saw last week. Lord, I pray that this week each of us could have powerful time at the throne of grace, meeting you and receiving mercy and grace to help, feeling your Holy Spirit changing our hearts through the word as we trust you. Lord, do a mighty work through this passage in in my life and in each of our lives here at Mercy Hill. I pray this in Jesus' name.